Welcome to Slim and Satisfied, a podcast about weight loss for women dealing with hormonal imbalances. I'm Daphna Chazen, registered dietitian and weight loss coach, and I invite you to join me weekly for conversations, practical strategies, and resources that will lead you on the right path to feeling satisfied with your body and your life. And now, let's get to today's episode. there. Welcome back to episode number 10 of the Slim and Satisfied podcast. I'm your host, Daphna Chazen, and today we're talking about PCOS basics, part two, which is success boosters. Part one, if you haven't listened to it, please go back and check it out. It was all about the basic principles of a good PCOS diet. This week, we're going to dive into two success boosters, which are essential for implementing a healthy eating routine successfully. These are not food-related concepts directly. We've covered quite a bit of ground on that in the previous episode, but today we're going to expand our perspective here a little bit and take a look at two main areas that can really enhance the success of the food plan and are really key factors in being healthy and treating our body well, especially with PCOS. And as you'll see, the recurring theme of reducing insulin resistance and reducing inflammation are definitely present here as well. So we're addressing these two underlying issues from a few different angles in this PCOS basic series. And that's the approach that I use with my clients in my practice and has been wildly successful. So I wanted to share it with you here. If you're tuning into the podcast for the first time today, well, welcome and thank you for checking it out. I recommend that you go back at least to episode number nine, which is the first part of the PCOS basic series so that you can get the gist of things and some of the information that I shared over there. But let's jump right into the first booster that we're going to talk about today, which is sleep. I think that sleep is becoming one of the biggest health concerns of modern day. I see sleep disturbances so very frequently with different population, different age groups, and different backgrounds. And I truly believe that it's becoming a chronic issue that's of epidemic proportions. So people that have hard time sleeping are now seeing a lot more implications, negative implications of sleep deprivation on their health. There are studies that show that women with PCOS specifically have a higher rate of sleep disturbances, specifically sleep apnea and insomnia. Sleep apnea is a condition, if you're not familiar with it, where we periodically stop breathing while we're asleep and it causes significant disruptions in our sleep cycle and of course the quality of our sleep. Sleep apnea is also associated with higher risk of cardiovascular disease and other health problems. Insomnia, which is the second type of sleep disturbance that we see in women with PCOS commonly, is of course referring to the inability to fall asleep or to stay asleep during the night. We're not exactly sure why women with PCOS have more issues with sleep and the causes are not fully understood, but there are a few possible reasons and explanations. We know, for example, that having a higher body weight and being overweight is one of the main risk factors for sleep apnea. In addition, women with PCOS have higher rates of depression and anxiety, and this may work in two directions when it comes to sleep. 
Feeling emotional distress, feeling anxious can definitely cause sleeplessness, but then at the same time, lack of sleep and poor quality sleep are both known to increase the risk for depression, anxiety, low self-esteem, and avoidance of social situations. So the connection between poor sleep and PCOS is likely related somewhat to excess weight, somewhat to depression or anxiety, and it can also be related to hormones that regulate sleep, which are melatonin and cortisol. Melatonin, which I'm sure you've heard about, is the hormone that communicates information to the brain based on light and darkness. So it goes up at night and down during the day. Anytime melatonin goes up, we feel sleepy. Anytime that they go down, we feel more alert. And while high levels of melatonin do help the body prepare for sleep, there are studies that show that women with PCOS have excess melatonin that is likely related to too many androgens, too many male hormones. So there's good reason to believe that melatonin in excess amounts, too much of it, can actually disrupt sleep as opposed to facilitating it. The other reason that hormones may play a role here is related to cortisol, which is a hormone that's secreted from the adrenal cortex, which is an area located on our kidneys. And you may know of cortisol as a stress hormone, But what we know is that in the general population, cortisol levels are generally lower during the evening and early night hours. That's mostly because we need cortisol to feel alert and aroused when we need to function and be active during the day. We don't need as much cortisol at night when we're trying to relax and kind of wind down from the day. So typically, cortisol will gradually increase during the later hours of the night and peak early in the morning where we need blood pressure to go up, we need our brain to start functioning a little bit more intentionally, and we need the body to kind of prepare for the day. That's when cortisol levels are going to slightly go higher. What we see in PCOS is higher baseline levels of cortisol, and that's likely related to the inflammation that we've previously spoken about, as well as some emotional factors. So anytime someone feels anxious or depressed, cortisol levels are likely going to be slightly higher because that's a form of stress on the body. So as we said before, if someone's having a hard time falling asleep because of emotional distress, their cortisol levels will likely never drop to the appropriate level because they're entering sleep with a higher cortisol level at baseline. They experience fragmented sleep for various reasons, which further increases cortisol. And now we have a situation where the body is flooded with cortisol all throughout the night, and that can put it in a very, very vicious cycle of restlessness and more hormonal disruption. Regardless of the exact reason why women with PCOS are more prone to sleep problems, it's really important to understand that poor sleep quality can have very negative consequences when it comes to weight and overall health. When we don't sleep well, we have much greater appetite. We seek a lot of energy-dense food, and that means food that give us a lot of calories, a lot of fat, or a lot of sugar in a small volume. So think of things like chocolate and ice cream and potato chip, chips. These are typically the things that we're going to crave and seek out the day after we've had a restless night. So this doesn't really happen after just one night, so keep that in mind. We're talking about a prolonged cycle, a few weeks or several months of poor sleep, disrupted sleep, and patterns of sleep that are not regular. That's where we really start seeing the more chronic impact of sleep deprivation on our health, 
but definitely increased appetite and cravings are one of the classic symptoms of sleep deprivation. Sleep disturbances also make insulin resistance worse, and this is mostly related again to cortisol. Cortisol does signal the body to not use up energy since it perceives what's happening as a stressor. So all energy that the body receives is to be stored and not used up. This means that the body increases its resistance to insulin so that sugar doesn't enter the cells. And of course, we know that that's the worst thing that can happen where someone already has PCOS with insulin resistance at baseline. We also see that people who are sleep deprived have more of the hormone that increases appetite. That's the hormone called ghrelin. And we also see less of the hormone that suppresses appetite, which is a hormone called leptin. So basically what happens is we're hungrier and we're less likely to stop eating when we're full, which is definitely a problem. Poor sleep also activates the part of the brain that seeks out pleasure immediately and shuts down activity in the part of the brain that weighs consequences to actions. So basically, it puts us in a state of mind where we just want what we want. We just want instant gratification, and we don't want to think about the consequences. So again, if you had a baby or if you were studying late at night and had a a time where you caught up on work or Netflix shows. I mean, whatever it may be, if you stayed up really late, you must have noticed the next day that you were seeking out different foods and that you were feeling hungrier and more cravy. But it's not a problem if it happens here and there, right? But if you're, again, a new parent or you do this on a regular basis, you have not the best time management or you just have too much on your plate and you end up staying very late multiple nights a week on a regular basis, you're going to see a lot more shifts in your hunger and cravings and a stronger desire for foods that are highly indulgent. So what are some of the things that we can do about sleep? How can we improve our sleep hygiene? The first thing you want to do is think about where you fall based on the recommendations for what a good night's sleep really is. The recommendations right now are for seven to nine hours per night on a regular basis. If you're not getting anywhere near these numbers, you need to work on that. That's something that needs your full attention. So you can start off with six or seven nights on a regular basis and make sure that you're going to bed a little bit earlier if you can't change your wake-up time. Ideally, most of us do go to, we don't reach the number of hours because we go to sleep too late, not because we wake up too late. So it's different for some people, and I think that for the majority of population, getting to bed earlier is a generally good goal. The second thing that you can do is Get some natural light during the day. People who have desk jobs or offices that have no windows really feel a more disrupted circadian rhythm at night. So we're going to see that even though we don't realize it, not being exposed to natural light during the day can actually impact what happens at night because it really disrupts our circadian system. The brain basically doesn't know when is it daytime and when is it nighttime if we're constantly under a certain type of light, especially fluorescent lighting, and we're not exposed to natural sunlight or daylight in general. So if the brain doesn't perceive any difference between what happens during the day and what happens during the night as far as the type of light that you're exposed to, 
that's going to be a big problem because it really going to mess up the signal signaling of your brain. So the other thing is that it's not just for falling asleep, getting natural light during the day. Many studies show that it helps with attention. It helps increase our um, mood as well as making sure that our reaction time is appropriate. So we're not groggy and sleepy. We're appropriately reacting and responding to things. A lot of times that's related to our exposure to daylight, according to research. So you don't have to sunbathe all day. I mean, this is something that you can accomplish with just about 10 or 20 minutes of exposure to sunlight during the day. Make sure that you get that on a regular basis, especially earlier on in the day when the sun is bright and you can really get that exposure. That's gonna help normalize the activity of melatonin. The next thing you can do is think about a routine. So as I said, seven to nine hours is, what, is what's recommended, but I realize that a lot of people have a hard time getting to, to these numbers. It may somewhat be unrealistic for some of us. One thing that we can all do though is keep our bedtime and our waking up time about the same. So getting a routine as far as when we go to sleep and when we wake up in the morning. You wanna be as consistent as possible with this. It may also be helpful to create a short bedtime routine to signal to your brain that you're winding down. This can really help with the transition for from work day to our evening or home life and into our nighttime relaxation mode. Most people can't go from typing away on their computer and being very stimulated by emails and messages and, and work-related stuff to then peacefully falling asleep. So think about simple things that you can do and ideally in a certain order every night to create that consistency. You may wanna have a cutoff time for social media, uh, a set dinner time, a brief cleanup session, which I think we all tend to delay and just go sit on the couch. And before you know it, it's very, very late. You didn't clean up and you didn't get a lot of things done. And now you're thinking about those things. Maybe your stress levels are going up a little bit. And as I said before, stress feeds into sleeplessness and so on. So you can even take five to seven minutes as a transition period to journal or just reflect a little bit about your day. So when we think about meditation, a lot of times we think we have to do this elaborate breathing sequence and really be all invested in it. It really is not what meditation is all about. You just want to take a few minutes or a few moments, even if it's one minute, to just relax, to just think, to just be, be present where you are in your day and help yourself transition from work and alertness and stimulation mode into a more relaxed state. It can really help with sleep later on in the night. Some people like to listen to music or, of course, a podcast. Some may find that planning for the next day reduces anxiety. And that would be me since I really do like lists. Lists are kind of like my love language. So I try to map out the day for the next day. So I try to map out things like what I'm going to be doing, what kind of you know food I want to take with me. I write things down in my planner that I have to do. And every time that I get thoughts out onto my planner or onto a to-do list, I feel better. Even though these things are not yet done and they're still very much on my to-do list and they still feel a little bit overwhelming sometimes, just getting them out on paper and organizing my thoughts does help me relax and transition into the evening hours and kind of putting everything away as far as my brain. 
So even if you just finish up dinner, clean up quickly, write down a few things for the next day, or maybe you do a little bit of breathing or relaxation or listening to music or a podcast, you're so much better off already because you've done several things. And if you do that every night or most nights of the week in the same sequence, that's going to help signal your brain that you're winding down and you're going to feel a lot less anxious, a lot less stressed, and hopefully that will translate to better sleep. The next thing I want to mention is something I was so guilty of for many, many years, and I realized eventually that it's just not serving me and I had to change it, and that is don't miss your window. If you're tired, your body is signaling you that it's ready for sleep. Pushing your bedtime even 30 minutes ahead can mean a hard time falling asleep and hours of tossing and turning. This used to happen to me all the time, and it still does occasionally, but I used a bedtime app on my iPhone, and it's been helping me to get to bed earlier. Since I do wake up on um, most days at 5.30 a.m., I really try to be religious about it, and otherwise, I just feel like I'm blurring the boundaries between staying up and going to sleep. Sometimes I fall asleep on the couch, and it's just a little bit more messy. So earlier in the year, it's been a few months already, I started being more intentional about going to bed when my body is feeling tired. I don't try to push it. I don't try to kind of get in another 10 or 15 minutes on most nights. And that's been really, really helpful because otherwise I would then wake up after sleeping either with my kids or on the couch for a half hour or an hour. And then I just couldn't go back to sleep and it wasn't right for me. So try to not delay unless you really have to. I can think of very few reasons why that may be where you have to delay. And they're almost always some sort of an emergency. So hopefully you don't experience those too often. Don't try to stay up late just because. Because something like this can really make a difference for you as far as weight loss and just the way you feel energy-wise and mood-wise the next day. So try to be as tuned in to your body as possible. And when you're tired, just go to sleep. Let's talk about stimulants at night and specifically about caffeine. A lot of people are caffeine sensitive and they don't realize it. So people who drink coffee may not realize that for some of us, it can remain in the system for five to seven hours. So if you think that drinking a coffee at three, four or 5 p.m. is not impacting you at nine or 10 p.m., It does. It really does. So unless you have no problems falling asleep, um, you may not have to worry about caffeine if that's the case, but just be mindful of that. It's one easy thing that you can change if you just went with decaf or half-calf, or maybe you switch to something like green tea, which still has caffeine, but it's a different type of caffeine that keeps you a little bit more alert as opposed to jittery and kind of overstimulated. Some people are also very sensitive to exercise at night. So just be cautious with exercise in the evening hours because it may stimulate too much adrenaline and may make it harder for you to fall asleep. If you like to exercise at night, if you like to move your body at night, you can do something like Pilates, yoga, or stretching. That can really help with relaxation as well. Let's talk about arguably the biggest issue at night, which is light exposure. There is a ton of evidence, a lot of research that artificial light exposure, which is basically the light that we all have at home, can delay our circadian rhythm, meaning we think that it's still daytime since we're exposed to strong light well into the night. 
To add insult to injury, we now have blue light, which is the type of light that's emitted from our phones, our iPads, and computer screens. And that's a type of light that studies show suppress melatonin twice as much as regular light or other types of light. And there's a new study that just came out that showed that being exposed to light is related to increased weight. So this study looked at women who slept with the light on in their room, so some sort of a light, or had the TV on all night long. And what they saw is that these women were about 11 pounds heavier than people who didn't do this after five years and were also 30% more likely to be obese. And these are pretty significant numbers. So if you do have sleep issues, there's a lot of easy ways that you can get started. I would recommend definitely looking at your bedtime, being consistent with when you go to sleep and when you wake up. Don't delay your bedtime. If you're feeling tired, listen to your body. And of course, try to limit blue light or exposure to any type of light in your house about two to three hours before going to bed. So you can dim the lights in your house. You can make it a rule that you're not looking at your phone, iPad, or computer screen for at least two hours before you want to fall asleep. And you also want to be careful to not go on your phone when you have trouble sleeping or if you already fell asleep and woke up. Sometimes people will go on their phone. I used to do this all the time, and it made it so much harder for me to fall back asleep. So I try not to do this anymore. And I have to say, I've been pretty successful, and my sleep did improve. Let's move on to talking about the next booster, which is stress. Stress is well known to be at the center of many modern day diseases, yet many people don't do enough to address it head on unless there's something already wrong or some type of an emergency is occurring, which in many cases is too late. I feel that for PCOS specifically, stress management is as important as diet, and we have to be very mindful of the role that stress plays in further disrupting certain hormones. So that's what we're going to talk about now. I want you to know that stress can take on many shapes and forms, and what I may consider stressful, you may not be bothered by. If you think about a challenging task at work, for example, some people thrive under that kind of pressure and environment of go, 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 achieve, 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 and they're able to perform to a high degree, whereas other people shut down and become crippled with worry about delivering some sort of an outcome or performing their best. Which person do you think is more stressed? Obviously, the person who's crippled and worried and anxious about performing. This example is simple, but it shows that stress is really not the event or the issue that we're experiencing. It's actually how we respond to the situation. And stress can come on from negative experiences, of course, but also from positive ones. Think about life events like graduations or weddings. These are both examples of joyous milestones that can nevertheless be stress-producing because they involve change and they involve a lot of unknowns, which is really where a lot of stress and a lot of interpretation of situations come. And that's when we feel those the bubbling up of stress. So While some stress is essential for all of us because it helps us grow as individuals and it also builds our coping skills, but what we don't want is constant stress that never gets resolved or at least reduced. 
That's because we all know that there's a clear connection between what we think and how we feel physically. And stress is the perfect example of this connection since one cannot be healthy when they're under stress. These two things never go together. So in order to feel feel well and be well and be fully present in your health journey, we have to recognize stress first, really identify what types of things are stressors in your personal life, in your individual experience, and then we want to address them. Keep in mind that we can't completely control or eliminate all the stress in our life, but we can definitely do better to manage it. Because remember, it's how I respond. It's how I react that's going to determine if something is causing stress or not. And that is something I have the ultimate control over. The type of stress that we can do most about is called chronic stress. So let's take a quick moment to talk about the two types of stress very briefly because I want you to understand the difference. Acute stress is one type, and that's a response to an event that's usually coming on very quickly, but it also passes very quickly. This is the classic stress response that the body's actually wired to deal with fairly well. You may have heard of this referred to as the fight or flight response. In prehistoric days, it was meant to enhance something really simple, and that's survival. So when a situation arises, the body will elicit a stress response, which includes things like sharper vision, increased heart rate, higher blood pressure, and shutting down for the most part of non-essential functions like our digestion. All of this is meant to help us run away from a predator or to prepare the body for some other type of physical challenge. Nowadays, acute stress may be something like running to catch the train or hearing a loud noise in the middle of the night and feeling your heart rate beat faster for a few seconds or your breathing getting more rapid but shallow. And the important thing to know here is that cortisol will go up in these situations, but it drops back down to normal after it's over. So it's a very temporary type of stress. It's transient, meaning it goes by quickly and it's done. The stress type that we're most concerned about is a different type of stress. It's more chronic. So this is where we have prolonged period of stress. Even if those stressors are smaller and may seem less meaningful, and they're usually not physical, they're more psychological, they're still highly stressful. So this could be things like work, relationships, of course, sleep disturbances. These are all things that will elicit chronic stress. We used to think that only big life events cause stress, like maybe divorce or, God forbid, an illness or death. But we now note that little minor stressors that happen frequently enough are just as harmful for our health. And we also know that when a situation is new or unknown or somewhat threatening to our self-esteem, or perhaps it gives us a sense of loss of control, it's even more stressful. For example, if we keep getting tasked by our boss with a new and highly demanding assignment that we have no time or bandwidth to perform, we'll likely experience a much higher level of stress as a result of that compared to just forgetting our lunch bag or having a huge pile of laundry waiting for us at the end of the day, because for most of us, that's a pretty familiar situation. The problem with chronic stress is that cortisol stays elevated long-term. It does not go back down to baseline as it should. So it can lead to a lot of problems, as we can see in research, and I see in my clients all the time. 
It can lead to things like weight gain, more sugar being released from the liver, so blood sugar levels stay very elevated. And we know when someone's stressed, they have higher blood sugar levels, and that's usually because of cortisol. IBS, which is irritable bowel syndrome, since digestion is not going to be working as efficiently if we're constantly stressed, it's going to be suppressed, right? It's it's a non-essential function. So the body doesn't want to give any energy or any attention to proper digestion. So a lot of times we see bloating, we see alternating constipation and diarrhea, we see a lot of cramping and pain. And what we also see is more buildup of fat tissue in the stomach area when people experience constant stress. So their belly fat is going to be much higher compared to people who experience lower levels of stress. There are also studies that show that high levels of stress can change the way the gut functions. So typically, the gut lining is a very tight tissue. It has a lot of different cells that are tightly packed together, and that's what keeps food and other particles from entering the blood. But when cortisol levels go up, that lining of the gut becomes a little bit more permeable, and it makes the gut more leaky, okay? So that means that food particles and other things that are supposed to stay in the digestive tract are going to enter the bloodstream and cause more problems and inflammation because they're not supposed to be there and the immune system is going to try to get rid of them. And anytime the immune system is stimulated, that increases inflammation. Stress can also decrease the function of the immune system in general. So if you've ever had a cold after not sleeping well or feeling stressed or traveling, that's because cortisol levels likely went up and your ability to fight viruses and infections plummeted. So what can we do about stress? What types of things can we practice every single day in order to reduce stress levels and make sure that we're keeping cortisol under control as much as possible? As I said before, the first step is awareness. You want to make sure that you're clearly identifying the situations, the people, or the circumstances where you feel stressed and that cause the negative emotions around that feeling of fear, anxiety, and worry. If you can avoid toxic relationships and stressful interactions, of course, do so. Don't be afraid of what people may think or say or what that new reality may look like. Being constantly stressed is not serving you and it keeps you away from your goals. It's making you get farther and farther away from where you really want to go. Be proactive about what you want and make sure that you don't get stuck in a stressful situation for the wrong reasons. Now, I do realize, though, that not all stress is avoidable, so here are a few additional ways that you can handle stress a little bit better. Don't believe everything you think. Stress is perceived. It's not a fact. Try to reframe how you respond to situations that challenge you. Can you find a way that a deadline at work may actually be for you and not against you? Will it make you better with time management? Will it increase your resilience to professional hardships? Or are there other similarly hard tasks that you've successfully completed in the past? Reliving these experiences can dramatically reduce the level of stress that you feel. The next thing that you can do is practice regular relaxation and self-care. Self-care is such a trendy topic right now. It makes me cringe a little bit because I think it's gotten out of proportion and kind of lost its true meaning. 
I really feel like it's way more simple than what self-care has become. So I think that things that are simple and free and can be done quickly are the best forms of self-care. You don't need a massage. You don't need an expensive shampoo to feel good about yourself. All you need is to engage in positive self-talk, being nice to ourselves, not being so harsh, so judgmental, and so critical of what we do. Give yourself a little bit of a break. Taking productivity pauses, this is something that I like to do where you're not producing anything. You're not working on anything for maybe 10 or 20 minutes each day. You're just reflecting. You're just doing something that's enjoyable can be really, really magical for self-care. It can really help you take your mind off of stress and take your mind off of the task list that you have in front of you and just being. So I call this a productivity pause because you're taking a break from being productive. You're taking a break from always doing, doing, doing. Just be, just relax, just sit and breathe which is the next thing I want to talk about, purposeful breathing. Intentional breathing can really alter your state of mind and diffuse negative feelings. There are studies that show that breathing actually reduces cortisol levels. If you're not sure how to breathe properly, I know it sounds weird, but a lot of people don't breathe properly, you can use an app like Calm or Headspace, and you'll be amazed at how it relieves tension in your body and clears that cloud of stress and worry we all get trapped in sometimes. I use Headspace a lot, and I try to do it every day, but to be fully honest, it doesn't happen every single day. It happens most days of the week. I really like it. The full version is a paid app, but you can get a free version of it that's just enough and will give you several minutes of guided breathing exercises that you can follow, and then you can do them on your own. You don't always have to follow the app, but in order to study it, in order to learn how to breathe properly, I do recommend using an app. Do it regularly, not when it's already an emergency. That's the key. You want to get in the habit of doing it all the time. And then the next thing is my favorite, which is creating a stress resource kit. This I do with my clients a lot, and it's basically a collection of names of people, books, videos, podcasts, or maybe a couple of apps that you find inspirational and empowering, and you make this list your go-to resource when the going gets tough. When you feel a little bit stressed, building up, you can go to your stress resource kit and pull some stuff out of it that will help you relax and feel better. Keep this list in your purse or on your phone and just update it frequently because what may have worked two, three years ago or even six months ago may no longer work for you. You want to keep it as up to date and as relevant to where you are today as possible. I hope you found the information about these two boosters, sleep and stress, helpful. I really encourage you to start implementing some of these strategies. They're all going to be summarized in the show notes below because they can really enhance everything that you'll be doing with your diet. So diet is super important, but it only works when you're working on stress, enhancing your sleep. And then next week, we're going to talk about supplements in part three. I hope to see you again here soon. If you like the show, please subscribe and write me a review. It helps more people find the show. And also make sure to check out my meal prep starter kit that's designed for women with PCOS. You can find it at daphnachazen.com forward slash PCOS plan. Bye for now.